0: You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit Uh, My name is Don. I'm one of the pastors here at the Axis uh, by the grace of God. And I'm often, often upheld by this pastor and this pastor and, and our newest, uh, Dave, who's in the back today. Uh, but Ryan, thank you. I don't know where he is, dude. you have no idea just that that when i pray over a, what i'm gonna say and then always these guys whether it's dave but this morning ryan the words mary i know the holy spirit is empowering everything that's going on here today and sometimes it's just so tangible that it that it overwhelms me um and so this morning, your, your songs, we, we, we're gonna see the king in action today in the temple and some won't recognize him. And he's begging them. This is me spoken of back here. I'm the king. Worship me and live. He's begging that and providing the grace to do so. So I pray that this message this morning might land on you as it has me. And so I'm going to go back to some of you know that I've been given a short piece of text this morning by these two guys. But I love context. But I promise I, I did it pretty quickly this morning. I'm looking at Derek because he times these things. I didn't know that until my Christmas, which was supposed to be like 20 minutes, and it was 40, not this morning. Uh, so if you're visiting, I promise, we're, we're on a clock here. If we go back, and I hope you have with, with Pastor Jeremy, after our vision weeks in January and, and the break in December for Advent, he's been leading us through the time when Jesus has come into Jerusalem for the last time, in other words, where we are in 1127 is actually today, even though our text is in 12, uh, it goes back to 1127, it's Tuesday of Passion Week. It's, It's Tuesday of the last week of Jesus's life. It's Tuesday when Thursday is the Passover when the lambs will be slain. They've been selected on Sunday, which is the day that Jesus came in, which is where chapter 11 begins, is on Sunday. And on that day, for context, we begin to see that everything that Pastor Jeremy <clears throat> has been preaching on for the last several weeks is flowing into the narrative stream that is becoming, I say, funneled down even into today's message uh, for a reason. And we begin to see that a crowd is with him in chapter 11, going before him and behind him, and he's seated on a donkey. In Israel of the time, that's overt language of this is the king, he's coming to take the seat, although we know he's coming to wear a crown of thorns, but nevertheless, he's the king, and, and, and the crowd is going forward, and behind him meets the people who are going to resist him out of the city, which are the religious leaders, and the religious leaders have come out because the crowd is actually saying words like, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, deliver us. Here's the deliverer, save us. This is the king, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the Lord's anointed. It's very overt, but as we know, they want to silence that, and so, or at least the leaders do. The leaders try to silence that king's approach. And though it's why, though we call it the triumphal entry, I say it's the rejected entry. Uh, that, that Jesus doesn't come into his own, he comes for a plan, and, and the leadership misses it. Like we might miss it if we're not careful, especially in today's text of the scribe. So if we see him moving in 11 and, and getting this sort of resistance, on a Sunday and he just comes into the temple, looks around and then goes away to Bethany to stay with friends, we find him on Monday morning coming back to the temple. And he's coming back and on the way he passes a fig tree that has all sorts of green, leafy, beautiful things that that look like it might have fruit, but it says it's not fruit season. So Jesus knows that, Why, why does he go and look in there for fruit? And we know what happens. It's going to be an overarching metaphor for what's going on in the temple. He looks beautiful on the outside, all dressed up on a Sunday morning, but on the inside, there's no fruit. And so Jesus curses the fig tree, moves into the temple, which we've got a, a slide there showing the grandeur of it from the Mount of Olives, and Jesus would be walking around, it says, and 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 there would be booze all in this court of Gentiles and as Jeremy said, you probably couldn't even have moved and Jesus prohibits that and cleans it out, runs those people out who are basically exploiting the poor and the travelers who were coming there that had to exchange money at, at exorbitant rates and then buy their own sacrifices from, guess who got rich from this? The temple priests, those in charge of the system. And Jesus cleanses the temple. Needless to say, they 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 seek to kill him because of this. There, there again in in chapter eleven, and and he went out of the city again. He would have come this way and crossed back over the mountain. And on Tuesday morning, our morning, he has come back in, and they notice, oh my goodness, the the fig tree is is now shriveled and and withered and, and dead. Because he found no fruit in it. He, he found nothing there. It's beautiful on the outside. Said to be one of the wonders of the ancient world. Fruitless. And so on this Tuesday morning, when he goes to the temple, the religious leaders now all accost him and we're, we're given the names the Pharisees, the Herodians, priests, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And they've come asking an important question. By what authority are you doing these things? And surely, contextually, it's in cleansing the temple and running their business away, but but it's deeper than that in the Gospel of Mark. It will extend back to chapter 1, around verse 22, where really is his first encounter with the scribes that they taught, as was the teaching of the day, according to other rabbinic lessons so that they would quote this rabbi says this about the law and this one says this. And they were experts at this. So they brought all of those years of speech, oral tradition, to bear on the people as law. And it says Jesus wasn't doing that. He's teaching as one who had authority. In other words, one who had the mind of God. He didn't need to quote from other people. He spoke the truth that he had written in the pages. And and when that occurred, of course, they deemed that as blasphemous. No one was doing that. So again, they've accosted him and said, what's going on here? And Jesus throws back at them a simple question. John the Baptist came and, and what's his baptism from, from heaven or from men? And, and, and they reckon among themselves, trying to keep their authority. Well, if we say it was from heaven, Jesus will say, then why didn't you follow him? But if we say, no, no, it was from men, then the thousands of people, tens of thousands of people who had gathered for the Passover week might just throw us off the temple. So they decide it's better to say nothing. And they say, we're not gonna answer you. So Jesus says, then I don't have to tell you where my authority is from either. And we begin to notice a little pattern here that that what's happening slowly is people are becoming silent. So silent that by the time we get to our text this morning, it says at the end, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. In other words, they're silent. And while we might view that as a good thing, Jesus is silencing the opposition, I say this morning's encounter with the scribe, Jesus is hoping to evoke a response and that silence isn't what he wanted from this scribe. And we'll see that in just a minute. Pray with me over the text. Father God, thank you for this morning. I pray that now the words that will be spoken are yours and therefore also the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing to you. To the glory of Jesus Christ, amen. And so after that encounter of authority and silence, we begin to see Jesus immediately tell a parable. He speaks a parable of a vineyard, and Pastor Jeremy told us that that really would have alerted, woken them up, alerted them. Oh my goodness, he's talking about Isaiah 5, because that was such a famous parable of a vineyard, and it starts the same. It starts by exclaiming the grace of one who had given the vineyard. To Others, it says, a man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, dug a vat, uh, in other words, a wine press under it, and actually built a tower there. In Isaiah 5, God is doing this same thing for the people of Israel, in other words, lavishing them with everything they need. The grace of God is just there for them in the land, and He only expects one thing hmm, that they be fruitful, fig tree, hmm. He expects them to produce good fruit that they might manifest his goodness to the world and others might see that and come and worship him and be saved. But we know in Isaiah 5 that they do produce some fruit, but Isaiah calls it stink fruit. Here, we're not told what the fruit is, but after a four-year wait is how long a vineyard would come in. After a long time, fruit comes in And the owner of the vineyard, who did all the work, put a wall around it to protect it, put a tower in the middle to protect it, actually dug out of stone, hewn it, would have been the wine press so it would catch all the juice that flowed from the crushed grapes. He's done everything possible. The grapes have come in, and he begins to send his emissary. The time is right to go get his portion. And those who'd rented, who'd been given the grace from the owner, began to abuse those he sent him to the point they killed some of them. Until that owner says, surely if I send my beloved son to those people, they will respect him, acknowledge, see him, know who he is, recognize his authority, and then fall in line. And what do they do? Oh, they recognize him this is the heir of the man who owns it all, so let's kill him. And then it'll all be ours. We will crush him. And the text says that those leaders of the temple system knew exactly who Jesus was talking about and sought earnestly to seize him that may might dispose of him. And then they begin to devise these plans. Let's just shame him in the meantime till an opportune time comes for us to arrest him. And the Herodians and Pharisees first approach him and say, you know, there's this issue of taxes. Should we pay them to Rome? And so they begin to devise devious plots that if they can shame him, they will ruin his authority before the people. But we know his answers. His answers are impeccable. Give me a coin, what's on the coin, Pastor Jeremy told us. It, it, it's it's Tiberius, it's it's Caesar. Render to Caesar the things of Caesar and the thing of God, the things that, that he made, the things of God to God. In fact, Jeremy pointed us back rightly to, to Genesis 1, 26, 27, where, where it is God, in his plurality, let us make man in our image. In other words, it's, this is a passage requiring totality of of a giving back to the creator, to the creator God who made us. Let's put ourselves under his dominion. Mm. This is tough language. So much so that that after Jesus said that, uh, they go away and another group, the Sadducees come who don't believe in the resurrection at the time and so they they begin this huge story about, hey, this, this woman has multiple husbands So in the resurrection that they don't believe in, who who are they gonna be married to? And Jesus gives one of his most stern, rebuking statements. In this, you have greatly erred. You're wrong. You don't understand scripture. As as Pastor Jimmy, the, the Greek there is, you've drifted from the truth. And if we understand that, Jesus points them back by saying, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So what is actually occurring is he's pointing them back to God's self-revelation in Exodus 3, specifically 6 and 14, where God speaks, I am in an identifying self-person, that he is a perpetual God who makes covenant with man, and those covenants will never end until they're ultimately fulfilled. In other words, if we go back to Abraham and we see God cutting a covenant with him in Genesis 12, land, seed, and blessing, Abraham never saw the fulfillment of those, but but. In Exodus 3, it is that God that that Moses says he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is showing that he is the God of those who are still with him and that his covenant is moving through time and nothing on earth will disrupt his covenant, including death. How poignant when he's speaking on resurrection. Taking them back into the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that the Sadducees believe are authoritative. That this king would have devised a plan that will move through time and that nothing will interrupt his covenant with mankind to save them. That's the Exodus story. And he's taking them there. He's taking them there, but then had to cut them off by saying, see, you, you, you've drifted from that truth of who your God really is. Now, I'm gonna be honest. At, at that point, they are silent. But again, Jesus is, the grace of God to not give up on people is trying to elicit a response to his grace. Thus, the parable of the vineyard. It's God who made it, dug it, planted it, did everything for you. But they are silent. And one of the scribes, one of the scribes has been watching this whole thing. I believe he's earnest. I believe he comes seeking to know the truth. I don't believe he's he's one of these Groups. I say he may be on the fringe, the way Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea we get in the book of John 3, 7, and 19, that, that, that I think he's on the fringe of knowing something here, but he just doesn't know what. So, so he comes after Jesus has answered all of these people well with a question. And I say he's exceptional, though I'll be honest, Matthew 22 says he'd come to test him, but I think that's in the context of question after question that Jesus is facing that I believe that what he's saying separates him from the others. Why? I've got a slide that shows how Mark, in his gospel, paints the scribes in a certain light that's not too great. So Dave, if we've got that slide, the the first place we see it, of course, is the, the challenge of authority in chapter one. But but then in chapter two, um, they, they really accuse him of blaspheming. If you'll remember, the, uh, some friends drop drop a friend through the roof that Jesus might heal him. And, and Jesus says, your, your sins are forgiven. And they go, oh, nobody can do that but God. He's blaspheming. And Jesus' response, well, I'll just... You know, do the hard thing. What, what, what's the easier thing to tell this guy his, his sins are forgiven or the hard, harder thing to actually heal him? Well, of course, that's harder. Take up your mat and, and walk. And he does. So if Jesus can do that, there's no doubt he can forgive sin. He is God. But they accuse him of blasphemy such that the story right after it, Jesus calls Levi, a tax collector, the the scum of Judean society. The lowest had no rights among the people, basically a traitor. And what do we find? That he immediately follows Jesus, leaves his tax booth and follows him and then throws an elaborate party in celebration of this new transformation and new life. And the scribes are there saying, "Mm, unclean. Why does he eat with the sinners? Because come on, in there, we know what kind of people are there. They're harlots, other tax collectors, thieves. It's just trash. And Jesus is extending the kingdom boundaries past the marginal, calling them to salvation. The king is there, and his his kingdom reaches them such that he says, I I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinner. But they accuse him of being unclean. They are so self-righteous. In 322, he's healing, exercising demons, and of course they say he's exercising demons by Satan, by the power of demons, which is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit section of text. In 7.15, they say, why don't your disciples wash hands according to the tradition? Those hypocrites, look at their life. They're they're clean on the outside, but mm, on the inside, their tradition is greater than their law. In 10.33, in his third passion prediction, we will find that Jesus says, they will be the ones who also plot to murder me. Further, 11.18, 11.18, where we're close to, they plot his death over fear and jealousy as people are astonished by his teaching. They are jealous. They begin to question his authority, which we just covered in 11.27. Right after our passage, they will be condemned as being outwardly religious and inwardly so greedy that they are actually selling widows' homes. Tangent to Jesus seeing a widow put in all she had. They will be active consultants as they are legally Uh, They're experts in the law, so they will be consultants and handle him over in trial and to Pilate. And, of course, in 15, they will be among those who look at him and say, look, he saved others, but he can't save himself. They mock him. And yet this scribe seeks Jesus out to ask him a question after seeing him answer all the other authorities so well. And so he asks his question teacher what's the greatest commandment of all what's the the number one and and the greek there it's the greek that 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 paul uses in first timothy 1 15 when he says this is a worthy and acceptable statement that that christ came into the world to save sinners of whom i am chief i'm number one i'm over all you looking for sinners the man on the stage In other words, this scribe has come saying, what, what is the one? What's the foremost overarching? Tell me that, because if, if I know that, and by the way, this is very contextually accurate for this time period. If I could know that, I might roll up my sleeves and be able to do it in my own self-righteousness. It's so contextually accurate because the rabbis had had for years and years, tried to boil the 613 laws in the first five books down to just as few as possible. Again, if we just have a few, we might be able to do them and earn favor with God. And in Psalm 15, the rabbis write that David boiled it down to 11. They will further write that in Isaiah 33, he got it down to six. Micah, in Micah 6, 8, gets it down to three. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Go back to Isaiah 33. Hey, we found that he's boiled it down to two. The Lord has said, preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is coming. Okay? Oh, we have boiled it down to two, to one in Amos 5, 4. Seek me and live. And then there's Habakkuk 2, 4. The righteous shall live by faith, a one. And so significant was this boiling down to where we might be able to do it in our own self-righteousness that the first century two schools had an argument about this, Shammai and Hillel. And it is said that a Gentile convert went to the great authorities of the time, and said, Shammai and Hillel, teach me the whole law, the 613, while I'm standing on one leg, which won't last too long. He wants it quick, so he can do it. Shammai, who's the more conservative scholar, I think hits him on the head with a piece of wood and chases him away. Hillel gives him an answer. That which is hateful to you, don't do that to anybody else. On this is the Torah. Everything else is commentary. You can see Matthew seven twelve for Jesus' view of that, that, that particular one. But what's been done is a view of getting the law where we can white-knuckle our way through it. And this scribe wants that one thing. And so, Jesus, you would think, I'm ready. He's coming with something novel. This is going to be great. We can do this. Takes them back to Deuteronomy chapter six. Chapter six of Deuteronomy, set in the same first five books, Pentateuch, where he had taken the Sadducees, so that they know this is authoritative. It is the great Shema. The word Shema is the first word in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, hear, but it also conveys and obey. So hear and obey, Israel. The Lord your God is one. I'm sorry, it reads right to left because that's Hebrew instead of left to right. So he points them back to a book, Deuteronomy, which is written, observed for Ever as a covenant treaty between a king and their subjects. And what these common ancient Near East treaties did and covenants was set the king here recalling all of the historical things he had done, Deuteronomy one through four, and then the ethical requirements of the subjects to remain in community or relationship with that king starting with chapter five, which is where the Ten Commandments are. So we have Deuteronomy 6, which, by the way, is is the great affirmation of the Judaism faith, Jewish faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, our God, the Lord is one. It sets God as king, unique among all other things. It rules out all idolatry. Those four words past the Shema Israel, those two on the, on the right, begin to, to tell you, if you recognize this king in covenant with you, the same God who keeps covenant through all of time, regardless of death or anything that, that might come in its way, is making a covenant with you pulling you into it, and you will recognize him as such. This is the way the 10 Commandments start in Deuteronomy 5. Hear, O Israel, same words. The statutes and ordinances which I'm speaking today in your hearing, learn them and do them carefully. For the Lord our God made a covenant with us, us, bringing them in, at Sinai. Now if you know anything about Deuteronomy, it's called the second law for a reason because all of that first generation who did see God at Sinai were gone. They died in the desert. These are their children. But notice the God who keeps covenant moves right along in history with them, couching this entire covenant of Deuteronomy in these words. I am, Exodus language, the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. In other words, I am a redeemer. I redeemed you, and I am king. And in that uniqueness, you can worship me and trust me. That's that's what I want. Now, if I'm the scribe, I'm on the edge of my seat because I know this, like the back of my hand. But then Jesus, after giving that commentary, of the Shema goes further with the Shema into the next verse. The stipulations of covenant. And you, knowing that I am your God and King, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Okay? With all my heart. That's the seat of your own will, the volition, the, 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 what makes you move and get up in the morning. You will love the Lord your God with everything that, that moves you to do anything, with all your soul. Nefesh in the Hebrew, suke in the Greek means your next breath, the essence of your life. You will love the Lord your God with that. In other words, the next breath you take in this room is a gift from him and his providential care and covenant over you. You will love him with all of that. You will love him with all of your intellect, every thought focused on him, regardless of where you're going or what you're doing. And with all your strength, Not just physical strength, though it is covering that, but it means everything in your possession that has power. It puts the rich at a very high requirement. But it puts others at the same, because if I'm in relationship, even with a friend, I need to have that friend moving with me. It brings everything, and it does so, if you'll notice, by all, all, all and all. Four times this word in the Greek is used. Love the Lord your God with all. And in the Greek, it's where we get our word holistic from. In other words, every part that touches you, systemically, you will love the Lord your God. So the Shema at the beginning has, has eliminated that if we're going to love him like this, we must eliminate all pursuits and plurality. No idols. No false thoughts. You can't have any. And the second part, the devotion of, of all our strength, of, of moving then with, with that totality of all, holistically, is then set with the third thing, which means out of the, that love the Lord your God with all your heart. The Lord, with is the Greek word ek, is where exit. It's from, from, from here to there. In other words, wherever you get your source of energy and life from, you're to love him with it. And I'm going to be honest, disqualified. If I don't have something, somebody, some measure means from this God who loves me perpetually in covenant and is moving through time and space with redemption at the center of that covenant, I'm missing the mark. But the scribe says, well said, teacher. You have said this right. And by echo, he echoes Jesus' very words. Yeah, to love the Lord your God. He uses the definite article with the heart, the mind, soul, strength. Is better than all sacrifices. Now there he raises the bar he begins to link loving God with a worship ethic in everything you do. He pushes it, in other words, forward, quoting, by the way, Deuteronomy 4 and a passage out of Isaiah 45, that God is like no other. And that if we're going to love him like this in this totality we must apply it in in, in a life that is lived in worship of him. And again, when I go, oh, how am I doing with this? I am utterly failing without some dynamic empowering from an external source. And as he says this, he is using a famous line from 1 Samuel 15 when this quote first appears that, that to obey is better than sacrifice. Because he's not throwing out the sacrificial system that God had created as, ooh, this has been awful. No. He's recalling in the scribe's mind something from 1 Samuel that he would have known. And that is that King Saul, who had risen out of obscurity to become Israel's first king, very reluctant to do so, actually hid in baggage when they're trying to crown him, is told to go and fight the Amalekites and that he will utterly destroy them. God will fight for him. And it's a portion of text that bothers us because it's the ban. In other words, everything was gonna be devoted from that victory back to God. You'll give it all back to God. Totality. Hmm, fitting. Saul, how you doing with this? The story goes that God calls Samuel and says, Saul has erected a monument to himself. Further, he has held back the things of value for himself, including the king of the Amalekites. Maybe as a trophy, I, I, that's my language. And the famous scenes, prophet Samuel goes and confronts Saul. And, and when he's confronting him over this, he, he says, how are you doing? And he says, oh, I've obeyed everything. I've done everything the Lord has Required of me, the all, 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 and all, and Samuel. Well, then why do I hear meh, eh, the bleeding of sheep's meh? Eh, you, you, you haven't done that. You've kept the best for yourself, and the love being talked about here in the Shema holds nothing back, brothers and sisters. I am chief, failing on this, and I believe what Jesus has now done in giving this foremost law, this chief law, is found our chief need, and he is asking that of the scribe. Recognize your need, you know the law. You even have extended it past the sacrificial system, knowing that that sacrificial system points to something beyond itself. It is me who will lay down his life For you. And I've been showing that all along. Chapter 10 even explicitly saying the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Now, that scribe says to Jesus after the good teacher. All of these things are right. And Jesus looks back at him and seeing the text says that he answered wisely. Two Greek words compounded together that he had a grasp with his mind to understand this. But what's missing? Heart, soul, strength, lots and i'm so desperate <laughs> to see the next statement out of jesus's mouth just follow me just fo- as he's done repeatedly to to others in the text but but he doesn't what does he say you are not far from the kingdom a haunting statement that you've come close you're almost in you understand with the mind but What are we missing? Because then the final statement of this text this morning, no one dared, no one had the courage to ask him anything further. Granted, Jesus has silenced his opponents, but I don't think that's what he wants from this man. Because silence is not always good in the book of Mark. If you skip to 16.8, the women have gone into the tomb, they've found it empty, the stone is rolled away, there's a man there Arrayed in white, and he says, uh, "You're looking for Jesus. He's not here. Look where they laid him." And they are struck with such fear that the next words must just go right past their head because the, the the whatever being this is in the tomb who has stated that Jesus has been risen says, "Now go and tell his disciples that he will meet them in Galilee as he has spoken." And it says that the women went out and were so afraid and actually traumatized by the scene that they were silent. Now we know the end of the story, they, they began to talk. Praise God. But, but but silence isn't always what is required here in, in Mark. And this scribe is silent. It breaks the heart to begin to think he's close, but not in. Then... Let me peek at just a little fraction of next week's text because Jesus begins to teach and says something directed to the scribes. How is it that the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? I prayerfully hope that the scribe is still in the temple, still watching, still listening. And Jesus has asked a a, a question. How do the scribes, you, say that the Messiah is the son of David because I'm hoping he's looking at him because if you just said to obey is better than all the sacrifices, you will remember that when Jesus, the son of God, began his mission, he made one command at the beginning. The time is now fulfilled. God's covenant moving through time is now fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent and believe and enter the kingdom. I pray he's there. The rest of the story doesn't tell us what happened. He, he has said this about, about religion, that, that, that the sacrificial s- system can become just rote, ritual, rotten. And that if we're not careful, and we, and we do go our own way, even in our own understanding, if we're not very, very careful, we begin to create gods or a god that we can manipulate by saying, you know what, I'm good enough or you know what, if I just do enough good deeds and good work, if if I pile up a mass, if you look at all the other religions, you'll find, put this on this side of the scale, oh, surely this good God will let me in. That is not the truth of the gospel. Repent and believe. The all, 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 and all has been made complete by Jesus Christ on the cross. Enter the kingdom through him and then receive his righteousness and live. Let's pray. Father God, thank you this morning for allowing us to see a slight picture of a man so very close who who needs to recognize who the son of David is, who needs to see that that, that one son of David, the last mention of that is is screamed out in Jericho by, by a blind man saying, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus calls him to himself and restores his sight. Father, I pray that we see this need for your son and our acknowledgement of his kingship as we will come forward in a minute to receive the elements of this meal he has left us in the name of Christ, amen. I I do pray this morning that you will contemplate your response, I think this entire episode has been geared toward bringing the scribe to a response of son of David, have, have mercy on me. And so we will have stationed left and right we'll take communion. There are are one in that corner, self-serve, and one in that corner. And so ponder this as we pray over this time together, intimate time together, before you come forward as to where you are in life. And give God thanks for his salvation that's been moved through a timeless epoch. Let's pray over this. Heavenly Father, we praise you that on the night your son was betrayed, he took bread and broke it gave thanks to you and gave it to his disciples and says, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. And likewise, when the supper was over, Jesus took a cup, gave thanks to you and gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this all of you, for this is my blood of a new covenant, poured out for you and the many for the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. Father, so we praise you for this mystery of faith that that Christ has come and lived and Christ has died and Christ will come again. Father, bring us to this table remembering your faithfulness in your Son. It's in his name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.